Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 26th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's, of course, because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And by now, you probably have heard about it already, and your computer probably already has downloaded the emergency patch, but Microsoft issued late last week an emergency out-of-cycle patch. If you're not sure, now would be a real good time to go to the Microsoft Update website and make sure you've got it. On Thursday, the company released a patch on an emergency basis. It's the first time Microsoft has done that in about 18 months. And when Microsoft takes a step that radical, you know something serious is afoot. Windows Secrets has an article that includes links to all of the download sites at Microsoft for the various Windows versions. Patches are available for all versions of Windows from Windows 2000 up through Windows 2008 server. The download is relatively small, about 630 kilobytes for most versions of the operating system. So the installation really should not be delayed. And if you want to take a look at the text from the Windows Secrets website, you'll find a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Several weeks ago, I mentioned Chrome, and specifically the absence of Chrome in Chrome. In browsers, Chrome is that stuff that surrounds the main window. Some browsers have a lot of it. Firefox, for example, and most of them have some Chrome, Internet Explorer perhaps. A few have just a little, like Safari. But now Google's Chrome has taken Chrome to a new minimalistic height, or maybe depth. There is virtually no Chrome in Chrome, which makes the name a bit ironic. Without setting Chrome to be my primary browser, I used Chrome exclusively for about a week. I then set it as my primary browser and used it for about a month. I do like Chrome. It may not be quite yet ready for prime time, but it is an amazingly good start. And at the end of a one-week trial, as I said, I did tentatively set Chrome as my default browser. There's been talk that Google's long-term plans are to knock off Microsoft with this new browser. But it seems to me that the likely first victim could be Firefox. Only a few brave people will be willing to work without Internet Explorer, but not too many people are willing to have half a dozen browsers installed. So it's the adventurous folks who will try Chrome, perhaps decide they like it, and then abandon Firefox. There aren't any plugins for Chrome, at least not yet. There are some known security issues. And Chrome has a feature that keeps information about your web browsing habits that some will fear and others will resent. Or some people may be like me and not care too much one way or the other. I would say that somebody will invent a way to turn off that feature, but I actually can't say that because I'd be wrong. Somebody already has developed a way to turn off that feature. Each Google Chrome has a unique ID that identifies the user, and Google doesn't make it real easy to remove that. So there's a program called UnChrome from Ablesoft. It replaces your ID with a null value to make your browser anonymous. Ablesoft says that Chrome's functionality is not changed and that you need to apply the patch only once. After that, Chrome is unchromed. So what's to like or 
What's not to like about Chrome? Well, there's much more to like than not. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you can see a full-screen view of Chrome operating full-screen, which is my preferred way of operating. Most Apple users seem to like to scatter little windows all over the place, and many Windows users do the same. I like to just switch among full-screen applications. Maybe it has something to do with the way my mind works. So the image you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website illustrates six features of Chrome. The full-screen version of Chrome places all the tabs on the Windows roof right up against the top of the screen. Most programs leave space for a title bar up there, and I use that title bar space for a clock calendar program that fits nicely in that spot. Because Chrome ignores standards that have been established for Windows, it's difficult for me to use that clock calendar. It gets in the way of Chrome's tabs. Eventually, I pretty much found a way to work around that. Office 2007 also places some information in this previously dead area, so even Microsoft isn't following its own standards. When you visit a website, the address bar is full of a lot of text. It typically will say http colon slash slash www.somedomainname.com forward slash perhaps a directory name and then another forward slash and a file name. Chrome highlights just the domain name. Okay, it's a small point, but it's a good one from the usability standpoint because it adds clarity. Chrome offers me a place to put my most commonly used shortcuts, and these need not include the sites that I always want to have open. Like Firefox and Opera, Chrome accepts a list of sites to use when the browser opens. So that means that list can be sites that I want to have open always, but the ones I put in the shortcut bar would just be ones that I may want to use regularly but not have open every time I open the browser. In the upper right-hand corner of Chrome, there are two menus, one that deals specifically with the page that I'm viewing, and the other controls Chrome's overall settings. Talk about those in just a little bit. I was able to import all of my bookmarks, saved passwords, and browsing history from Firefox. But perhaps the best thing is because of the minimalist approach to layout, Chrome leaves most of the screen available for the website that you want to view. When I open a new tab, Chrome shows me the thumbnails of sites that I have visited the most. Not just the ones I have visited most recently, but the ones that I have gone to most often. It ranks what it shows here by popularity. The more times you visit a site, the more likely it is to show up. You also get a list of sites that you have recently added as bookmarks and a list of tabs that you've recently closed, just in case you might want to go back to one of them. Or you can click a link to see your recent browsing history. And from that page, you could select a link to open the site again or delete an entire day's worth of browsing history. I'd recommend to the folks at Chrome that they produce a little finer-grained control here. Instead of deleting by day, you ought to be able to delete individual sites. I suspect that'll come in a later version. But I can see how being able to delete a day's worth of history would be useful if you're trying to debug a problem with a site and you want the cache cleared, but you don't want to clear everything. On the history listing, there are some links that have stars. This means they're also in my shortcuts. I can click the star to edit the name of the bookmark, change its location, modify the URL, or even delete it from bookmarks. Another way to find something is just start typing it. This is very Mac-like. 
For example, I started by typing Microsoft, and Chrome showed me options for a Google search using the term, along with some Microsoft pages and some non-Microsoft pages that refer to Microsoft. And I also have the option at that point to see the recent Microsoft pages that I visited. This is a really nice idea. It's an excellent feature. If I am researching something, I may visit dozens of sites and many pages within a site. Being able to see the list of pages that I visited while at a specific site is really helpful. When it comes to options, Chrome doesn't yet have a lot of settings. There are no add-ons. The only changes are what Google calls basics, minor tweaks, and under the hood. On the basics menu, the settings that nearly every browser has, what should happen on startup, what you consider your home page, what search engine you want to be the one you'll use by default, and which browser should be your default. Under minor tweaks, well, this is where you tell Chrome what your default download location is, or you instruct it to ask you where files should be saved, where you specify whether Chrome should save passwords, and where you tell Chrome what language to use. Under the hood is the longest menu of the three, and it is the area for advanced users. Technical issues, security, privacy, all of those are in there. Most browsers use what is called a multi-threaded model when they have tabs. Chrome uses a different approach. Actually, it uses a very old approach. Instead of launching a new thread for each tab, Chrome instantiates a new browser process for each tab. These various processes have inter-process communication, so they all look like they're part of a single process, but they're actually separate. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, in an operating system with robust memory management tools, this really wouldn't be necessary, but it solves a problem that's common to Windows. If you use Firefox, even version 3, which has made great strides in this area, you know that opening and closing various tabs will eventually cause Firefox to grow huge. That's because when a tab is closed, memory is released, but some of the memory never gets reused until the browser is shut down. Now, I'm one of those people who always has at least a dozen browser tabs open. Throughout the day, they come and go. With Firefox, I know that I'll probably have to close the browser down sometime during the day and restart it because of this memory leak problem. I have not had to do that with Chrome. After using Chrome as my primary browser, both at home and at the office, for about a month, I did go back to Firefox. I did that because there are a number of websites that don't yet recognize Chrome or don't work properly with Chrome. At least not yet. So bottom line, well, how do you rate a free program? It's good. Not quite great yet. It's free. But I mentioned that. So three cats. I would say Chrome is probably the browser to watch. As much as I like Firefox because of all the plugins that are available, it looks to me like Chrome could be the long-term winner. Google certainly has the resources to develop the best browser on the planet. Only time will tell whether they'll actually be able to do it. I should probably wish WinZip a happy birthday. WinZip has been around for a long time. It continues to evolve. The latest version is 12, and there are some new features for image compression and management, support for new compression methods, improved compression performance, and support for additional archive formats. The new version also does not work with some of the older versions of Windows, 
just with Windows 2000 and above, Windows 2000, XP, and Vista. Sorry, folks, time marches on. If you have an older operating system, Windows 95, Windows 98, Windows NT, Windows ME, for example, you can simply continue to use the version of WinZip that you have installed. Just don't go to the new version. One of the most surprising changes is WinZip's claimed ability to compress JPEG images. This was previously thought not to be possible because the JPEG format already compresses images. But WinZip says that version 12 will compress digital images by 20 to 25 percent without any loss of photo quality or data integrity. Is this true? Maybe. In my tests, it seemed to be more wishful thinking than fact. For example, I started with 13 images that had already been reduced. 13 JPEG files were 1.94 megabytes uncompressed. When I had WinZip compressed them, the result was a 1.993 megabyte file. Big difference. So I looked for a directory with more files that had not been reduced in size already. I found one with 54 images, totaling 121 megabytes. These compressed to about 120.38 megabytes. Well, that difference is negligible. I tried several other tests and was never able to get more than about a 1% additional compression. So, at best, the extra compression isn't something you should rely on. But, wait. That seems to be out of character for WinZip. They generally tell the truth. So I dug a little deeper and found that, by default, WinZip uses legacy compression. Legacy compression is compatible with older versions of WinZip and with other compression programs. I changed the setting to best method, and I received a warning that told me the compression method I was using might not be compatible with other programs. And the resulting zip file was 20% smaller than the existing JPEG files. So it works, but there is a small additional price. Your receiver will also need to have WinZip 12. WinZip's enhanced send feature allows you to compress images and send them as an email attachment with a single click. Once the file is compressed, WinZip hands it off to your email program. At some point, WinZip became part of the Corel Corporation. It doesn't mean the company has moved to 1600 Carling Avenue in Ottawa. The WinZip folks are still in Mansfield, Connecticut, and they're still creating what is probably the most robust data compression application available to Windows users. So, bottom line, WinZip is again the compression tool by which others are measured. Given the low cost of storage today, I'm not really sure that the Pro Photo version of WinZip is worth the additional cost. However, if you send a lot of images by email, and particularly if you send them using a modem instead of a high-speed Internet connection, or if you send them to someone who uses a modem, a few extra dollars might be money well spent. In Nerdly News, back in December of 2007, I wrote about Netflix's Watch Now service. It was new at the time, and I didn't think much of it. I wrote these words. Recently, Netflix added Watch Instantly. That allows me to watch a certain number of hours' worth of movies every month on my computer. I can now say that I've done it once. That was enough. At that time, the service wasn't very reliable. But I tried it again this month, and much has changed in the past 11 months. This isn't to say that I expect to spend a lot of time watching videos on the computer, but the occasional 45-minute-long one-hour TV program. Recently, for example, I watched a few of the early Rockford files with James Garner. It's annoying to Mac owners that there's still no Mac player from Netflix, 
but Netflix founder Reed Hastings says the company is continuing to work on a Mac solution. You also can't watch with a Linux machine or with any browser other than Internet Explorer version 6 or later running on Windows XP, Service Pack 2, or Vista. So if you have an Intel-based Mac, you could boot to Windows using Boot Camp, Parallels, or Fusion and watch Netflix movies that way. Hastings says the Star's premium cable network has closed their Vongo service and will now use Netflix as its Internet delivery provider. Also coming this year, streaming Blu-ray movies from Netflix. It'll be interesting to see how Internet service providers react to that. And Yahoo says it's going to lay off at least 10% of its worldwide workforce in an effort to get expenses under control. That's about 1,500 people. Yahoo's income dropped more than 60% in the third quarter after the company shrugged off a proposal to be acquired by Microsoft. And the company's stock price is now about a third of the $33 per share that Microsoft had offered. Yahoo's been looking into a joint operating agreement with Google or maybe a merger with another member of the walking wounded, Time Warner's AOL. Neither of those arrangements has led anywhere so far. The Olympics and the current presidential campaign have translated into more traffic for Yahoo, but unfortunately for Yahoo, not more money. CEO Jerry Yang says the goal is to reduce annual expenses by more than $400 million. A story in the New York Times quotes some analysts as criticizing Yang. According to that article, under Mr. Yang, who became chief executive in June 2007, Yahoo has been lurching from crisis to crisis and has been unable to outline a credible turnaround plan. The layoffs are not likely to address some of the problems plaguing Yahoo, which include a loss of market share to Google in web search and to others in display advertising. Earlier this year, Google cut 1,000 jobs, but acquisitions and other business activities have actually left the company with more employees than it had at this time last year. That's it for TechBiter Worldwide this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 26, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Don't forget, check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.